Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hello, how's it going? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I am an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. This show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network, so if ag podcasts, vlogs, and blogs are your thing, head over to farmruralag.com. It's actually pretty cool. I think we've got maybe seven or eight other ag podcasts over there now, so make sure you've, you've checked those out. I think they're they're good stuff. I have learned many, many things from this show, but one of the key takeaways I would say is that it's often at the intersections of, of knowledge, of technologies, uh, where true breakthroughs and in innovation seem to happen. And what I mean by that is it's often when um, knowledge of one technology when paired with knowledge of another technology and combined to attack the right problem seems to work. You know, what one thing that comes to mind, we had recently on um, Olympia Yarger with Goterra, and she was doing Black Soldier Fly. And I, I'd waited a long time to talk about Black Soldier Fly on the show, even though I've looked into it for a very, very long time, because I just just didn't hear of anybody who was really practically looking at the problem with trying to grow these things. And the fact that she has paired it with uh, IoT technology to basically create these robotic shipping containers, that was like a breakthrough for me. It's like, oh, yeah, when you apply that to Black Soldier Fly, like, that's cool. That could work. And I think that episode showed they're, they're really on to something there. So anyway, I... I just think it's when we can understand multiple technologies that maybe we can find some of those intersections and put it in the context of whatever agricultural problems you're interested in solving or whatever agricultural innovations you're interested in working with. So I thought it would be good just in between series here. We just finished up sustainability at scale last week. Next week, we're starting accelerating ag tech. Let's take one episode and just learn a little bit more about artificial intelligence, shall we? Oh, very happy to have on the show Dr. Jeremy Williams. Uh, Jeremy leads biotechnology and ag productivity innovations at Monsanto. Uh, very impressive guy. I had the chance to hear him speak. I was moderating a panel, and he was one of the uh, headlining speakers at the Agribusiness Council of Kansas City's Innovation Forum back in February. I'm really, really glad that uh, over the, the past few months, we've finally been able to find a time to get him interviewed for the show, and it fits in right well between the two series. So this isn't necessarily cohesive with sustainability or with accelerating ag tech, but I haven't really had an expert like Jeremy on the show to talk about artificial intelligence and to understand what that means and what machine learning means and how it is applied in the ag industry. So I'm very excited about this. I think you'll enjoy it. Here is my interview with Dr. Jeremy Williams of Monsanto. Well, I'm very excited today to have Dr. Jeremy Williams on the show. He is the Vice President of Biotechnology and Ag Productivity Innovations at Monsanto. Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. Well, this is exciting for me because I am going to uh, get to be a student, as I often am in these shows, to to really better understand words that I've heard a lot, I've I've uh, even used myself, uh, but still don't quite fully understand 
uh, all of the aspects to it. So I'm excited to talk to you more about artificial intelligence. But, but before we do, let's uh, let's get a little bit of background on you. H- how did you uh, end up with Monsanto? So I uh, currently lead the biotechnology and ag productivity innovations functions. So uh, we're responsible for our trait uh, research, biotechnology research, as well as our chemistry, uh, chemistry both for uh, disease control as well as for weed control. I, I came to Monsanto by way of an acquisition. I was at a startup divergence here in, in St. Louis that was focused on nematode control. And we, our thesis was that you could take the, the newly developing science around genomics, around computational approaches to accelerating uh, innovation, and apply that to ag biotechnology, specifically to nematode control. And nematodes are these small uh, worms that infect plants and many other organisms. As part of that work, we discovered a new way of controlling nematodes uh, that was the reason for the acquisition by Monsanto. That work has continued and is now uh, the nemastrike area of technology that was recently launched. And so that was how I got to Monsanto. My background is in uh, biophysics, and so it was because of the work I did at, at Divergence that I got introduced to agriculture and fell in love with applying science and technology to solving problems in agriculture. Great. And, and I know uh, one technology that, that you're passionate about and what I want to dive into more today is, is artificial intelligence. And before we get too ahead of ourselves, which is a problem I tend to have, get, get, getting ahead of myself, uh, can you just at a, at a real basic level for those of us who are not technical, give us just a really um, high level explanation of what artificial intelligence is? Sure. So our artificial intelligence or AI, as I'll probably use the shorthand uh, more frequently, is sort of the umbrella term uh, to describe the use of computer technologies to perform things that we normally think of as being associated with human intelligence. For example, facial recognition or the ability to translate uh, one language into another. Uh, So that umbrella term, using computers to perform tasks where they look at lots of data, they, they uh, determine insights and then they can predict things is what is referred to as artificial intelligence. Within the sort of umbrella term, you've got lots of different things you'll hear like machine learning, deep learning, etc. These are all specific examples of different computer techniques that are used to essentially turn data into insights. And so you're starting to see that now used very uh, broadly across uh, agriculture, across uh, other sectors in technology, and internally at Monsanto, I'm very uh, excited about uh, the example for, uh, of using artificial intelligence for recognition. So the same technology that Facebook uses for image recognition, we've applied to disease recognition. So now a grower or an agronomist can take a photograph of an infected plant and get a very quick uh, assessment of what that disease is, and as a result, determine how to treat it. So pretty exciting and very similar to things that we've seen in, in other parts of our lives. 
It is really exciting. I, so with, I know at a, a really basic level, so like software is sort of, it, you know, it's written in code as sort of a set of rules where if this happens, then this is the result. You know, if you type the button for the one on your keyboard, then you're going to get, you know, a one on the screen, et cetera. Where is the big distinction sort of with artificial intelligence? Is it just totally different than software where it's not a set of, you know, not a code written that's a set of rules. It's just like a totally different thing. So you've got you've got you've got a whole spectrum of things. So some kinds of artificial intelligence have lots of rules, and they're rules for how to discern patterns from data and turn them into insights. And many of these are called uh, machine learning. So there's statistical models that are coded in software where you can essentially train the computer on lots of data to con- to then turn that data into sort of predictions, right? So there 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 are rule-based aspects to artificial intelligence. There are also other kinds of artificial intelligence that are more sort of that learn kind of the way we learn, the way children learn. So you can imagine having uh, software where you feed it lots of different uh, data points that are categorized, you know, pictures of cats, pictures of dogs, and you ask the software to then figure out what it's seeing. This type of artificial intelligence that's usually called deep learning uh, doesn't always have to have rules that specify everything that you're going to learn. The, the software, in a sense, learns from the data and can classify or categorize things. And so you see both types of artificial intelligence, both the rule-based ones and then the ones where you sort of infer or learn from large amounts of data. And many of the facial recognition algorithms are actually more of the latter. They learn from the data how to recognize a face. Uh, and as a result, they can recognize faces even when you have you know, lots of noise or other uh, distortions in the image, right? They can learn to spot very small differences between features. This is why they're useful, for example, for disease recognition. You can give people diseases that look very similar, but the software can learn how to distinguish them and can actually predict them very accurately. So you've got both kinds under the sort of umbrella of artificial intelligence. Wow. So in that case, even something that's so subtle that maybe the human eye couldn't detect the differences in because of the sort of granular data approach of the machine learning, it, it can it can see it. That, that's right. In fact, you can have your system use different kinds of data that maybe humans can't even perceive. You can imagine training a data set where some of the imagery is, let's say, uh, infrared uh, radiation or ultraviolet radiation, things that we don't see. But this information might, in fact, have differences between the two categories of things that you're training on that then the model can learn how to recognize. So absolutely, you can, have, you can train these models to recognize things that are very difficult for humans to, to recognize. Hmm. And in the example you mentioned of, you know, similar to facial recognition, maybe a, a plant recognition where it can recognize a, a weed or, or pest, um, how does that kind of manifest itself as a practical application? Is it is it you know something where a f- farmer uses his phone to take a picture and then can identify what's in his field, or what might that look like on a practical level? Yes, it could be as as simple as a farmer uh, takes a picture and gets a diagnosis as to what this disease is, and you, as a result of that, you can decide: Do I need a fungicide, or was this actually a bacterial disease, and a fungicide would not help? Hmm. For example. It could also be more complicated things. So you're probably familiar with uh, technologies that are being developed for weed control. And so you can imagine having 
a, a little rover going down the field, and it can recognize the weeds and distinguish them from the plants. And you can use that to then spray a herbicide or some other chemistry on the weed and specifically uh, control just the weed and, and not, not have any impact on the plant. So I think you're going to see both simple uses of the technology as well as more complex things where it's paired with automation with, you know, whether it's rovers or, or drones or other things that allow you to to move and do different things in the field. Interesting. Yeah. So, so something that maybe you couldn't automate before because you still needed that human eye. Um, maybe you can now. Correct. You, you can imagine, uh, you know, most of us would rather not go down a field manually picking out weeds, but uh, you can imagine having a, a rover that goes down and, and does this for you. And, and I think this is a very important development in agriculture because it will, it will allow you to apply chemistries much more precisely, right, which is important from a sustainability standpoint. And I think over time, there's going to be increasing desires from society to have agriculture be even more sustainable. And so I think the development of automation, uh, the use of data science uh, is going to help us meet those uh, demands from society. Is there anything uh, either from Monsanto or you can use another example if you'd like either way um, that – you know, maybe we don't associate with artificial intelligence because it's not an artificial intelligence application, but it's only made possible due to some advancements in artificial intelligence. I don't know if that question makes sense, but, um, you know, something where maybe a technology is only possible because it required artificial intelligence in order to make it in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I can give you two uh, examples of this. So we we now have a collaboration with, with Atomwise, and it's around... Uh, discovering new crop protection chemistries. And so the, the standard challenge with crop protection discovery is you need to screen hundreds of thousands of compounds to find your initial hits, as we call them. And then there's a very long process to develop the next fungicide or insecticide, on average now 11 years and, and costing more than uh, $250 million. So pretty expensive and very long process, mm -hmm. and it's very risky. So most things that you discover, you know, let's say year two, fail and don't make it all the way to the finish line. This Atomwise collaboration, what it does is it uses uh, machine learning to allow us to screen millions of compounds in the computer, and then now you only need to, t to test, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand uh, actually in the lab or in the field. And, and so this is pretty early for us, but, but in principle, this will allow us to dramatically accelerate the discovery of new uh, chemistries, and we'll be able to do it, uh, we think, ultimately at much lower cost. So that's one example of something that artificial intelligence enables that you really couldn't do by traditional screening methods. The, the second example I'd give you would be something we're doing uh, as part of a collaboration with Second Genome. Uh, which is, is, is targeted at finding new insect control traits. So this is for our biotech uh, programs, new insect control traits for expression in plants. The challenge here is that we are seeing more and more resistance to the existing biotech traits, and it's increasingly difficult to find new ones that don't do very similar things to the ones that already exist in the marketplace. So how do you go find these more novel traits? Uh, it's actually very difficult to do by traditional means, but you can use both a combination of deep sequencing of microbial genomes as paired with computer methods, artificial intelligence, 
to now find lots of potential insect control candidates that you would probably have never even recognized as being potential insect control leads you'd want to advance. Hmm. So that's another one of those examples of things you really couldn't do without this combination of genomics and artificial intelligence that allows you to do things at a much, much bigger scale. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it, manually, without, without artificial intelligence, I'm, it would just be just impossible. I mean, you, you couldn't possibly get enough time or people or money to, to do all that, I wouldn't think. That's right. And you would more than likely end up finding things that are very similar to what you found before. So that, this is one of the things about these technologies that's particularly intriguing to me is they allow you to learn features of the data that can then predict novel new activities that you might not have thought of, right? So I can now find new insect controlled proteins that don't look anything like the ones I was testing on because the computer model learned what it took to make a good insect control protein, right? Yeah. Similar things for, for, for chemistry. So really exciting ability, I think, to get into new space. And now just a quick word from our Sustainability at Scale series sponsor, Marone Bio Innovations. Hey, ever heard of Marone's Bio with Bite? Marone Bio Innovations offers modern crop pest protection for the modern organic and conventional production systems. To make sure every grower using their products realize the best possible return on investment, Marone invests time and resources to thoroughly test and demonstrate the efficacy of those new state-of-the-art products. With serious trial data to back it up, you can see more and connect directly with Marone by visiting them at www.maronebio.com. That's M-A-R-R-O-N-E-B-I-O.com. Thank you so much to Marone Bio Innovations for sponsoring this Sustainability at Scale series. And with, with the DNA sequencing specifically, is there like a DNA sequence database that you can, can kind of set your artificial intelligence computer out on to, to scan? Or is it all you have to sort of source all of that yourself internally? It's a, it's a mix. So we, we have access to, uh, thankfully, a very large amount of, of DNA sequence information from organisms that have been sequenced by public institutions, private institutions, and, and then made available more broadly. Uh, but we also do a lot of our own targeted collection of microbes and sequencing, uh, primarily because we want to go after things that might be more unusual, hmm. and because that's another way that you can find things that, that, that are different to what you found before. So interesting. And I, I know, obviously, most listeners have probably heard of, of, of Watson, uh, which is IBM's, the way I understand it, it's, it's IBM's sort of supercomputer that's, that's basically artificial intelligence. And I think that's what a lot of people have in their mind. Is, is that the right track for how to conceptualize artificial intelligence, or are you missing a big component there? So what, Watson is one, one example of, one very cool example of artificial intelligence, you know, using machine learning to process lots of uh, language information and then using it to play Jeopardy. Uh, but you can also, there are also people probably familiar with the use of artificial intelligence to play chess yeah, uh, or to play uh, uh, Go, another one of these very complicated board games. What is less recognized that I think is, is intriguing is the ability now to pair human intelligence with artificial intelligence. And so there have been some very interesting uh, games done where you have, for example, a human chess player paired with uh, an artificial intelligence chess playing game. And what they find is that the combination of the human and the artificial intelligence game 
is actually superior to either the human or the, or the, or the game by itself. And this is, I think, something that we don't pay enough attention to. Artificial intelligence, I believe, will enhance human intelligence and will allow us to focus more on the creative aspects of human intelligence and rely on the machines to do more of the rote work. I think that ultimately will be better for, for us as humans. And so that, I think that's a really cool example that unfortunately doesn't seem to be as well known, the fact that when you put the human with the machine or the human with the computer algorithm, you can actually get a system that's better than either by itself. Yeah, I, two two questions on that. I'll, I'll go one direction, then go the other. But the first is the human element of that. Does that require some specialized training on artificial intelligence itself to to be able to maximize sort of the um, the synergy between the human and the computer, or is it more just specific to whatever that job is? Uh, it does not require deep expertise in artificial intelligence. In fact, uh, one of the things that we focus on in developing these programs is making them so that they can be used by a larger community of, of scientists. Hmm. That being said, uh, it is important to develop not just an appreciation for which models work in what settings, but to, to, to appreciate where, where you might be best able to use the technology. And so this, this notion of digital fluency and the notion of having some basic competency in the, in the understanding of computer techniques and the use of these tools is something that we believe is important. And it's been a focus of Monsanto uh, to develop this digital expertise in, in our broader scientific uh, workforce. And so that's important, but you don't actually need, you don't need to be a specialized person who has a PhD in, in AI to take full advantage of the, the potential. It's really cool. And I, I know some people, the idea of like humans and machines working together to, to, you know, be more intelligent than either could be on their own is exciting to me. I know that there are um, others that worry that these machines are becoming so intelligent that maybe we should be concerned. They're gonna, either going to take jobs or they're going to, you know, turn against us in extreme situations. I know Elon Musk is one uh, notable example that has said some kind of scary stuff about the future uh, with AI. Uh, what do you think when somebody asks you, do, do we need to be concerned about the the influence uh, AI might have on our future daily lives? So we, we see AI, as I, as I just mentioned, as an uh, enabler of human intelligence and human productivity. I am personally interested in, in, in this argument that has been playing out for actually a very long time. It, it's not a new one. And in fact, there are many of the same sorts of views about technology going back to the industrial age, what you find is that new technologies create more uh, new job opportunities than the ones they eliminate. And there are some very recent studies that, that suggest that something very similar will happen as a result of AI, more jobs being created than are eliminated by the adoption of these technologies. I think ultimately these technologies enhance human potential. Uh, and it is what we need if we are to have the ability to farm more productively, more sustainably, and potentially on a lower footprint. Right? These technologies will allow us to meet those challenges, the demands of much having far more humans on the planet, the demands of having far more uh, consumption of calories, 
coupled with increasing societal desires for, for greater sustainability. And so when, when I look at just the long trajectory of technological advancement, what, what I come away with is that these things on balance are uh, enablers and help improve uh, on the human condition. And, they, and I think they're a way for us to be even more uh, creative and productive as humans because they will truly take away some of the rote activities and allow us to be more creative. It's really cool. I want to switch gears here just a little bit. Obviously, I, I couldn't couldn't uh, interview somebody at your level with Monsanto without asking about kind of uh, the acquisition uh, by Bayer. Kind of what does that mean for ag innovation, and uh, how do you feel about the future going forward under the the new um, merged company with Bayer and Monsanto? So this combination, when when it uh, when we get to day one and we can uh, integrate, is going to bring together. Uh, you know, some tremendous scientific expertise from the two organizations. It's going to give us access to a, a wider portfolio of technologies, chemistry, data science, uh, microbes, traits, than either company has by itself today. And I believe it will be an accelerator for uh, our, our research and development. And it, is, it has always been a fundamental part of the thesis for this combination to drive uh, science and drive R&D discoveries and developments more efficiently and more quickly. Give you a specific example. So in, in my area, I've got uh, herbicide-tolerant traits that we're developing, and then we usually work in combination with partners who have developed uh, herbicidal chemistries. And the way this is normally done is sequentially. You develop a chemistry, that takes 10 to 11 years, and then you get going working on the herbicide trait that you can use as part of the system. Now imagine if you actually had both things as part of the same organization. You can actually start to develop these things in parallel. And so this is one very tangible near-term opportunity of combining these two organizations, the ability to do many of the things that we currently do sequentially to actually do them in parallel. There's another big, uh, I think, advantage of the combination that we don't always talk about. And that's the, I think, how, how the, the cultures will synergize and result in even more creativity. We've got two really uh, impressive organizations, but they have focused in different areas. Very in chemistry, we more on the season trade side. We have developed different competencies, different cultures. As we bring them together, I think there's an opportunity to really have a lot of cross-pollination and even more acceleration in that creative science that comes when you bring different expertise, different ways of thinking together. So personally, I'm very excited about the combination and I am very eager to get on with it. Well, you have been able to experience uh, some some of the you know, larger company cultures, but I know, uh, like you said at the top of the show, there your your start was with uh, Divergence, which was a, uh, a a startup, and you scaled it up, and eventually um, was were acquired by Monsanto and became Nemastrike Technology. Um, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show. You know, based on your experience, because you you've kind of you've kind of gone through all the life cycles of a company, it would seem. Uh, what advice would you give to new ag tech entrepreneurs out there listening if they want to um, see a technology grow and, and prosper as you have? So the divergence experience was, for me, a, a, a really pivotal part of my life as a scientist, as a leader. And uh, many of the lessons, I, I think, are relevant to other entrepreneurs, as, as you say, but also 
are lessons that are, are applicable to folks in, in larger organizations. And so the first thing I would, I would share is the importance of focusing on the team. The, it is very important to have a diverse, complementary set of individuals that are all focused on making the business succeed, right? So it's about the success of the organization, not any of our individual successes. So that team, the quality of that team is very important. The other one is uh, you don't know everything as an organization. I don't care how good your people are. There's a lot of very important science, a lot of important technology, a lot of important business knowledge that exists outside. And so it's very important to be uh, externally focused, to partner aggressively, and to use to leverage a much bigger ecosystem that you, than you can build yourself with your organization. The other one is things don't always go the way you expect. Hmm. In fact, they usually don't <laughs> I can relate to that. work the way you expect. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the ability to fail and learn and recover, you know, is very important. NEMA Strike was not our first nematode control chemistry project. It was either our third or fourth, right? And so the ability to actually have the staying power to learn and to, and to iterate is very important. Uh, and then the last one is, and this, and this is maybe more uh, applicable to small companies, as you're working with the bigger players, uh, you will find that they appear very slow because <laughs> a lot of things happen on the inside before decisions get made. You have to be patient, but you still have to persist, right? This is essential. Uh, there is a process that usually is playing out that you are not aware of. Don't assume because you didn't get a response within a week that there's no interest. Hmm. So those would be some of the things I would say. Team, external focus and partnership, the ability to fail and recover, and then especially for the entrepreneurs, the ability to be patient uh, and tenacious, I think is very important. Yeah, that's always a it's always a difficult balance to strike between that sense of urgency to get things done, but also the patience to know that they're not going to get done on your timeline. I uh, definitely related to that. It, well, one follow up to, to to that answer as well on on just this culture of innovation and, and sort of getting to the being okay with failing. Um, how how does one sort of uh, foster a culture of innovation on the team, but also just kind of keep that. Uh, uh, keep on top of things personally. I mean, you're somebody who has a lot of responsibility in your role, but also really likes to kind of keep on top of these innovations personally as well. So what tips can you have for others that want to do the same? Yeah, one, one thing I try to do is uh, is to read. Uh, and so to make sure that I'm, I'm trying to stay abreast of things that are happening externally, I read, uh, you know, not just technical journals, but things like Scientific American uh, MIT Technology Review. I mean, just to, to keep abreast of of technology more more broadly. In, in terms of the culture, I think it's important in teams to create a sense of safety where people are are, are okay bringing half baked, unfinished ideas, and they're okay communicating failures and okay communicating things that uh, maybe it wasn't the positive result you were hoping for. Right. That free flow of information and coupled with diversity of skill set and expertise is where I have seen lots of uh, innovation arise, right? Mm -hmm. it, just, it just arises naturally from people talking and working openly with each other where they feel safe, that they can bring forward 
uh, any idea. I, I think that's pretty key. Absolutely. Well, uh, Jeremy, this show is called The Future of Agriculture. So as you think about uh, the future the future of this industry, what, what gets you most excited? Well, so we, you know, we, uh, we tend to focus a lot on the challenges that we will face for agriculture, the how you feed the larger population, how you do so more sustainably, the impact of climate change and so on. And all that is real. But I am really excited about the advances in technology, you know, whether it's artificial intelligence, automation, the use of microbes, the focus on systems and integrated systems and, and customizing them for farmers using their own data from their fields. I mean, this is really exciting stuff. And so I personally am very optimistic that these tools will allow us to meet the challenges that we face. They will do so, I think, in a way that also improves farmer profitability, because this is a very important thing as well, right? It's great to have tools, but ultimately we we want to have a system of farmer customers that are also doing well. I picture like some some version of like a cyborg farmer in the future where this man and technology working together to super produce in a sustainable way. I know that's just my my mind's going to, to science fiction now, but I think it's uh, it, it is exciting to especially getting back to your earlier comments about how people and technology can work together um, so that, you know, there's the synergies are created. Thank you, Dr. Jeremy Williams, for being on the show. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jeremy Williams, and I'm hoping you're walking away with a little bit more knowledge about artificial intelligence and how it's applied in an agricultural context, both directly in the terms of technology that will likely be sold to farmers, but also indirectly and how we're using machine learning and artificial intelligence to uh, leverage to create other tools. So I think it's it's cool stuff. And and I definitely got uh, some better perspective on, on these issues from talking to Jeremy. And hopefully you did too. If there's anything I didn't ask Jeremy that you wish I would have, please head over to speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. I will be sure to include your question and and an answer uh, from Dr. Jeremy Williams on a future episode of Follow Up Friday. We'll warn you, as we launch into accelerating ag tech, this Follow Up Friday is going to take on a little bit of a different tone. We are going to use the follow-up Friday to get to hear from the the accelerator programs themselves. So on our main episode, we'll feature an ag tech startup. The Friday following, we will feature a mini segment, still five minutes or less, about the accelerator. So I think that would be kind of a cool one-two punch. Hopefully you enjoy it. Hey, what are you thinking about a follow-up Friday? I would love to hear from you. I'm at Tim Hamrich. And then I want to give one more quick plug. I mentioned at the top of the show, I had met Jeremy at the Agribusiness Council of Kansas City's Innovation Forum back in February. I have been doing some more speaking engagements this year, both sitting on panels or moderating panels, as well as giving even keynotes. I'm really enjoying doing that. So if if you or your company or your trade group has the opportunity for someone to speak about the future of agriculture and the topics that we talk about on the show, uh, let me know. Maybe we can work something out and I can have the pleasure of attending your next event. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week as we kick off Accelerating Ag Tech. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com, that's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. 